we're not immune, those of us who are vaccinated or those regions who are highly vaccinated, to the effects of other states and other people who've chosen not to be vaccinated and turn into virtual you know, waterfalls of mutation and a spread of the virus. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Last March, when the COVID-19 pandemic took off and lockdowns began, I asked my brother, Steve Goodman, to join me on the Vermont Conversation to talk about this new virus and what we could expect. As President Trump said confidently that the crisis would pass with the arrival of warm weather, Steve warned that what was coming would be a tsunami that would swamp us. I believed my brother. Steve Goodman is an associate dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and of medicine. Steve was visiting Vermont this weekend, and he kindly agreed, okay, after some brotherly arm-twisting, to another Vermont conversation to talk about what we can expect as the aggressive Delta variant spreads across the country and the pandemic continues to evolve. Steve Goodman, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Well, nice to be back, and nice to be back here actually in Waterbury recording this uh, conversation. Yes, great to have you here in Vermont. Um, Let's start by talking about the major concern right now, which is the spread of the Delta variant. Uh, Some locales, such as Los Angeles, are now reimposing mask mandates in response to rising cases Uh, What is the Delta variant, and why and how does it pose a special threat? Well, the Delta variant is a version of the virus that first emerged uh, around December in India, and as you said, spread very quickly to the UK. And its hallmark is extremely rapid uh, spread from person to person. Um, There was a variant that emerged uh, somewhat before it um, that was about 50% more likely to to be transmitted from person to person. This is another 50% on top of that. So uh, compared to the original virus, we're now, uh, which had which was infecting roughly two to two and a half people um, on average uh, under, under normal interaction circumstances. Now the Delta variant can, in, can infect up to three and a half to four people. And given exponential rise, that is a huge, huge difference. So it just jumps from one person to the next person way more quickly and easily. And the second thing that's a bit of concern is that there is evidence that it's making people sicker. That is, once you get COVID, you're more likely to land in the hospital. Um, And with all the uh, attendant complications and and increased risk of death. So the Delta variant, which now makes up uh, about 20% of cases in the United States, is by far and away the fastest uh, contributor to the rise in cases. That's why the CDC said it would be the predominant strain, uh, maybe in as little as a month. So I have this picture, this image in my mind of variants, you know, these these little bugs that are keep pulling on doors. Most of them are locked, but one of them's open and they go in. So Maybe you could uh, dress this up a little more. What are variants and how do they work? Since that's going to be essentially the problem we face going forward. Yeah. Well, actually, your metaphor isn't bad as a communications device. 
uh, a variant is is actually just it's actually a physical thing it's a physical change in the structure of the virus and what antibodies and the and the immune system look for and respond to are those structural parts of the virus that they can attach to now every time the virus multiplies and the virus is multiplying in every person millions of times uh, uh, over and over and over again every time it multiplies it makes a tiny mistake in the genetic code because the genetic code is what's being transferred from one virus one one generation in the body to the next and some of these mistakes result in an actual change in the structure. It substitutes one amino acid for another, and it changes the shape, literal shape, of, of the virus particles, of the virus, the, the, um, the spike uh, binding that you've seen, uh, the, the picture of the coronavirus, which looks like a crown with little spikes uh, emerging from it. The shape of those spikes changes just a little bit and what happens is every time, every person in which there's one of these tiny mutations with a slightly different virus interacts with another person, if the mutation is such that it's more likely to evade the immune system or more likely to make the person sick, sick that one stays in circulation because that person then is more likely to send it to the next person. If it's not a good mutation, it doesn't go any further. So it's a massive um, example of survival of the fittest, of, of, of Darwinian selection. That is the best of these millions and millions and millions of potential mutations. Uh, the best, that when I say the best, I really mean the worst. The ones that are most likely to jump from one person to another in spite of even immunization potentially um, are the ones that spread the fastest. And so yes, they're knocking on the door millions of times a day and some get through, they have the right key and that's the one that's that we then have to live with. So every time we hear about a variant uh, and there have been many, the South African variant, the UK variant, now the Delta variant and I'm sure many, many more than, other, than what we hear, we all have this collective shudder waiting to hear if the vaccine that we had um, will protect against it. Do you expect that one of these variants is going to evade the protection that we have from our vaccines? <laughs> well, of course, that is the, the huge question. One, one thing I want to say just to start is They've changed the naming of these of these variants uh, because we don't want to label certain locales as being responsible for for uh, the virus. So now they're labeled by Greek letters: alpha, beta, gamma, delta. We're up to delta, and that's the one that's you know, m most prevalent right now. So the question right now: it has mainly been multiplying in populations where the feature that it selects for is speed and ease of spread because most of these populations back in December when it was first detected in India there, there basically was no immunization and when it started rising in the in Great Britain there was very little immunization so mainly the virus was selecting for a feature that made it more potent as a spreader there's nothing about the 
uh, immunizations that guarantee that we couldn't find eventually a mutation that selects for evading the vaccines. And the more multiplication we get within communities where there are a lot of people vaccinated, the more what we'll call pressure there is for the, um, for the virus. The only viruses that will then escape are the ones that are resistant to the vaccines. So now we're entering into a new world where it is in communities where there is a lot of vaccination. And if there are components of those communities that are unvaccinated, they will be sort of the engine of multiplication that might create the kind of a uh, variant that might be able to infect more easily an immunized person. So if the the, in sum, if the virus is multiplying in communities that have very, very low vaccination rates, it's not likely to uh, morph into a form that will evade vaccination. But if we start intermingling, intermingling high vaccinated populations with low vaccinated populations, which are the engines, the, the generators of millions of mutations, then we might get unlucky and we might get one that evades the, uh, the current regime of vaccines to some extent. To what extent will it be complete? I doubt it because these vaccines have so far shown a lot of durability. They seem to have promoted vaccination against a core part of the, vac of the virus that seems to be pretty resistant to change. That means it might be critical to its function. So the, the vaccine cannot, cannot um, uh, mutate in a way that destroys its function, that it destroys its ability to multiply in the body. So, so far the vaccines we have have done a pretty good job at targeting those areas that might be pretty important for vaccine, for uh, virus multiplication, but we don't know, we won't know until, I don't want to say this is all over, uh, but, but we won't know for a while because so few places in the world have adequate immunization rates that those mutations uh, are being, that, that vaccine-resistant mutations are being selected for. So this week, a Yankees-Red Sox game was canceled when uh, some of the players on the Yankees team had breakthrough infections. Can you talk about uh, breakthrough cases, and is it a cause for concern to hear that vaccinated people are testing positive? Well, I would say not really, uh, but we have to keep an eye on this um, because there are clues that maybe the new mutations are, are breaking through. But we knew right from the beginning that even the very best vaccines were only 95% protective. Um, now, I, that number is a, is a tricky number because that number was 95% protective against simply against symptomatic infection. That is just having any symptoms. But the real thing we're worried about is not symptomatic infection, but infection serious enough to put you in the hospital or to kill you. The current vaccines are much more effective at that than they are at just preventing symptomatic infection. So right off the bat, we know that roughly five out of 100 of people who are um, who would have gotten uh, the um 
disease before are going to still get it. So the 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 uh, it's not zero. But what seems to be a very good news is that the number of people who end up going to the hospital and and dying uh, who are immunized, even those who get sick, are very very small. And in fact, the CDC re- released numbers just last week that showed us how small that risk is. And I'm going to cite one number that's going to sound large, but it's really not so large. The CDC is reporting roughly a thousand deaths among people who were Im- previously immunized, but that's among 160 million people who were vaccinated, com- uh, completely vaccinated in this country. So that's a risk of roughly one in 200,000 of dying overall um, if, if, you, uh, if you're vaccinated. And of course, if you hadn't been vaccinated and you got the disease, your chances of dying would be far, far higher, probably around a thousand times higher. So that that's a risk that's really very, very tiny and much smaller than many of the risks we live with as, as risks of daily living. You recently did a study of long COVID. Um, explain what it is and what you and your colleagues found. Uh, sure. Uh, what we did was a study study of studies. We looked at all the studies that were out there that looked at, um, in a sense, how long the symptoms of COVID last after the initial syndrome, which is uh, everybody knows makes you extremely weak, might make you hypoxic, have low blood oxygen, um, put you in the hospital, make you desperately short of breath. Um, after those uh, symptoms subside, um, what we know is that there's a set of symptoms that seem to linger on in many people. And there hasn't, that we don't know a lot about this, but long COVID is the phenomenon of symptoms either appearing anew or lingering after the acute phase, after the, the, the risk of immediate risk of death uh, is over. And we don't have a formal definition quite yet, uh, but generally we regard it as symptoms that last uh, more than a month after the resolution of a of acute COVID, and what we find in the in these studies, and I'll add a couple other studies that have been published since. Uh, the first studies were done uh, in in mainly in hospitalized patients because those are the only ones that people were following and had good records of, and and it was very concerning. Uh, we found about seventy five percent of these folks had persistent symptoms, and I'll talk about which symptoms those were, uh, at uh, either one or two months after uh, the disease, the acute disease. And there were a few studies at that time. Now there are more coming out, and we published this about a month ago, uh, more coming out. Uh, The numbers at six months weren't changed much. Uh, And in fact, a, a recent study just published last week confirmed what we saw. So what we saw was about 75% were reporting some symptom. Now I have to caveat this saying they didn't have control groups in these in these studies. So some of the symptoms could have just been a function of prolonged lockdown, uh, like lethargy, depression. We, we know from psychological surveys that a certain number of people who haven't had uh, COVID uh, suffer from depression. But a variety of COVID-specific symptoms were among them, and in particular, shortness of breath, um, a, a brain fog recurred in uh, a, persisted in about a, a quarter of people, sleeping difficulties, um, uh, 
loss of smell and loss of taste. If you get it, you only have about a one in uh, five chance of, of having that. But once you have it, there's pretty high chance of it uh, taking a long time to go away. There was a total of 85 signs and symptoms that were reported by these studies. And I heard a recent one was reporting something on the order of 200 possible signs and symptoms that were part of COVID. So the long COVID. So the most important thing, several important things is this is a total body, multiple organ system disease. This shows us that COVID attacks virtually every organ in the body. There was none, absolutely none, that didn't have some degree of COVID symptoms in some people, whether it's kidney, heart, brain, lungs, and what looks like, you know, generalized symptoms like chronic fatigue syndrome, just really debilitating fatigue. So it's a multi-system disease and it needs, uh, in a sense, multi-system care. We don't know the cause. We don't know whether it's immune caused by the, the immune response. We don't know if it's lingering virus. We don't know if it's just lingering damage from the initial insult. I think this is going to be the war after the war. If we actually win the battle uh, with acute COVID, and for obviously for, for millions, they've already had it, a tremendous number of these are going to be facing some degree of long symptoms, just like PTSD after the various wars that we, the, once the the veteran, the, 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 the soldiers come home, the war's not over. And we're going to find that, and we're finding it right now with, with long COVID. Uh, one other thing is the risk of long COVID seems to go down with the initial severity. So I said 75%. That's mainly in hospitalized people. And people who don't, with moderate disease who don't go in the hospital, probably more like uh, 45%. Still, these are huge numbers. And people who have very mild uh, COVID, which is the majority, um, probably more like 20 to 25 percent. And if you're younger, the numbers are still uh, are yet less. But these are still very high numbers. If one in 10 or even one in 20 of people who've had COVID have these prolonged symptoms, which can be debilitating, uh, that's a serious public health issue for the future. So we're, we're not done with this when people um, uh, uh, just, you know, recover from the acute symptoms. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> that is very sobering. Um, let's ex- broaden the lens here to what is going on in the country. And it appears that America is dividing a, with COVID in a healthy America and permanent pandemic America. The Northeast and the West Coasts have high vaccination rates um, and low infection rates. But much of the South Uh, Take, for example, Arkansas, where just one-third of people are vaccinated, um, but also Louisiana, Mississippi, have extremely low vaccination rates, and they are now the epicenter of the spread of the Delta variant. Um, And I should also point out that this map nearly exactly mirrors political preferences, as uh, all but one of the 14 states with the highest number of new cases are led by Republican governors, and most of those states were won by Trump in the 2020 election. So what does it mean for how COVID-19 continues to unfold if this scenario continues with states on the coasts having largely suppressed the virus and the pandemic is raging in the states in the center of the country? 
Well, this, of course, is the public health professional's nightmare. And, and I do want to congratulate Vermont right now. I have to take this opportunity. You do have a Republican governor. Obviously, he's not of the same temperament as many of the Republican governors in the southern states. And you have the highest vaccination rate in the country. So Vermont deserves a tremendous amount of credit, both for the vaccination rate and for the low overall circulating rates, because that shows very healthy public health behaviors. You can't just do it with vaccinations, um, because even though you have the highest, still 32% are not immunized, and that includes a lot of children. Uh, obviously, the people at highest risk uh, from bad uh, um, outcomes are immunized. Um, so against that background, we, we're we all connected. Just like here in the United States, we started suffering, getting the effects of COVID just a few weeks after it appeared in China. Couldn't be much farther away in China. And then it was here. China, Italy, here. That wasn't exactly the sequence, but it just shows we're globally connected. If we're globally connected, we are certainly connected from state to state, particularly now as the anybody who's been in an airport recently, which I have, as mobility starts to increase. So what's going to happen or what is happening as we speak is these islands, or sadly much larger than islands, large portions of major states go unvaccinated, where as you say, the infection rages, they will continue to be the factory for cases that then spread across the country even to immunize people, because as I said, even though the vaccines are highly effective, still one out of 20, they, they, they reduce the, the numbers to one out of 20. But if you're getting large numbers of people exposed, that lower number will still be a larger number than it should be. Uh, so we're, we're not immune. Uh, those of us who are vaccinated or those regions who are highly vaccinated to the effects of other states and other people who've chosen not to be vaccinated and turn into virtual you know, waterfalls of mutation and a spread of the virus. So we're going to see far, far less virus in the highly vaccinated uh, populations than we would than, than if they weren't vaccinated. But at the same time, we'll see far, far higher rates in those areas than if there weren't other states that were producing this this uh, waterfall of cases. Hmm. Let's broaden the lens even more and talk about the global situation with COVID. Uh, large parts of the world remain unvaccinated. What about this global picture concerns you? I'm worried that large portions of the world are unvaccinated or poorly vaccinated because they're going to suffer and they are suffering in India has, is only the most recent, and we're perhaps not even hearing of some other countries that don't have as much media access, they are suffering from a humanitarian and public health tragedy just as bad or much worse as we did just a few months ago. Uh, uh, India has been hit particularly hard, and in many cities they were running, they were run out of oxygen. Some, some countries barely have any oxygen available even before the, the, um, uh, the, the, the peak of their epidemic hits. So this is a huge, this is still very much a pandemic. The phrase, the post-pandemic should be banned. Pandemic means it is spread across the globe. And this is 
absolutely raging like a like a, an intense forest fire across this uh, across this globe and there are whole countries and whole continents that are completely unprepared for the devastation that is going to be wrought and that we're seeing already in some of the countries ironically that did pretty well at the beginning and so they didn't feel quite as um impelled to um uh promote the vaccine vaccinations uh, as much as they could have but the bigger problem is the lack of access uh to vaccination by most of these countries due to either socioeconomic or, or political reasons and uh, this poses a tremendous threat to those countries and then it, it poses a threat back to us because i talked about the connectedness of us with other states but we're as we've seen already we're connected to these other countries there's no country uh, that we can that that could be or should be seen as a potentially uh, ignorable uh, place for for COVID to occur by the United States. It's a, it's it's a global catastrophe that's still very much in, in um, very intense. So in many parts of this country, as I mentioned, the majority of people are unvaccinated. What do you want to say to vaccine skeptics? At this point, I don't know what to say to vaccine skeptics. They're not skeptical for reasons I believe that's really related to their health or the health of anybody they care about. Um, the information is out there. The, the choice to vaccinate or not vaccinate, because it has become so politicized, seems to be almost an issue of personal identity and and exercising a, a strange twisted version of of individual choice of freedom this is their expression of freedom of course it just puts them in more of a virus threat prison uh, but there's almost nothing one can say that seemed certainly from a from a radio show that will convince people who who it's like trying to convince a Red Sox fan to why it's better to root for the Yankees <laughs> or vice versa. There's not words you can say or facts you can put in front of them. That said, there is a small slice of people who are rejecting for reasons that do seem to are susceptible to community efforts and the voices of trusted individuals. And we're trying very, very, very hard to get through to them and in certain very, very intense community based efforts have worked in some places, but there seems to be a core, a core of resistors who, whose, whose reasons have nothing to do with facts and nothing to do with even their own personal health or those of their families. And it's very hard to know what to say to them. They're making a personal choice. It has implications for all of us. Um, but aside from absolute mandates uh, for them to have access to any social privileges like going to work uh, or accessing uh, public transportation, which we're not about to do, I don't know what more can be said to them. What I wish wouldn't be said to them is a lot of the misinformation that is fed on uh, a lot of the airwaves and on Facebook, which just reinforces the sense that they are being threatened by their government. Uh, with vaccines and that somehow 
getting vaccinated is a surrender is, is surrendering uh, their own autonomy or identity or even health to the government. Um, so, you know, me telling them to trust the government isn't going to do much. We we have to have a wholesale change in the as we have in political in the political communication system, which uh, is not my expertise. So as people are now returning to work and school, there the question is coming up to mask or not to mask uh, indoors. Uh, what's your take on the need to mask, let's say, in states with high vaccination rates like Vermont? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll try to ans- give you the short answer. Uh, now that people are being immunized, we don't have to be mortally, at, a, at an individual level, mortally afraid of COVID infections. Because even if you get infected, the probability that you'll get very sick and or even more that you will die are very, very small. So the fear that we have built into us of being infected for immunized people should really diminish. Um, if you are uh, susceptible to, if you're not immunized, if you are at higher risk and you're in an indoor high risk setting where there are lots of people and it's enclosed, then you absolutely should be thinking of masking. And in fact, those businesses themselves might, might want to impose uh, masking requirements. For the general public health recommendations, I would say you just have to pay attention to the public health officials. They know what's going on. They also are tracking the import of infections from other places. This is a high tourist area. Um, and so we are not, as we talked about before, segregated from other communities. So pay attention to what the public health officials are saying and know that they're saying it for a reason. It's been 16 months since uh, the coronavirus appeared, uh, you know, widely in this country, closing schools and whatnot. What have we learned from this pandemic? Well, I think, sadly, uh, it's a combination of what we've learned and what we haven't learned. What we've learned is that the public health infrastructure is a critical part of the both the economic protection of the United States as well as the physical protection of its citizens. We've learned that, sort of. The flip side is it's not clear what sort of investment we're getting in those public health health systems to make sure they're strong enough to even meet the future needs of COVID, no less the next pandemic. I know uh, my colleagues um, and friends in the public health system in California are bemoaning the fact that they are not getting uh, what they hoped was, which was large influx of funding to support things as simple. Let's let's be clear what infrastructure means. It means a, a an information system so that there, some central authority can know really how many people are in the hospital from COVID within a day when it happens, or even within a week or two weeks. We've sort of cobbled together a system right now. We have the illusion of reliable numbers, but they have been cobbled together for COVID. We do not have solid communications infrastructure. We have incredibly poor staffing in um public health departments, the ability to do any contact tracing or virtually any critical public health functions are far, far below the needs of the population. And this is not just for COVID, but for 
all the threats that we normally face. So we've learned how critical this is. Uh, we have sort of cobbled together a system <laughs> out of scotch tape and wires uh, for the for for COVID. Um, whether once we feel that the threat recedes here, we'll let this whole thing sort of fade away um, is unclear. Whether it will be more robust than it was uh, when we started, very unclear. What is absolutely clear is if we don't make significant investments, uh, that we will suffer the same fate in the next pandemic that we did in this one. And we saw that countries that were very well prepared were able to keep rates extremely low right from the start. And that was something we didn't have a prayer of doing. And right now, it doesn't look like we'll have a prayer of doing next time if we don't learn this lesson in the form of more financing, more investment, serious attention as to the public health infrastructure and staffing. Well, uh, Steve, I want to thank you for joining us once again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for being here. Uh, I, I, I'm very happy that Vermont is where it, it is and many other states are are where they are. And I'll pray that we see further improvement going forward. Thanks so much. Steve Goodman is Associate Dean at Stanford Medical School, where he is also a professor of epidemiology and population health and of medicine. He's also my brother. 